Brothers and sisters, let's worship the Lord by opening up His Word, hearing His Word preached. It's another aspect of our corporate worship, the hearing of God's Word. And so, in this respect, I invite you to join me in opening up to Psalm 18, the 18th Psalm. I mentioned this last week, but we're about to begin a series through the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, In the meantime, we're considering a few psalms. Last week, we looked at Psalm 17. We saw how David uttered a desperate cry of of deliverance, uh, asking the Lord for deliverance. Uh, But today, we see kind of maybe the, the next step in that. The Lord delivered, and so now we see a song of love, a song of praise, a song of thanksgiving at how the Lord answered David's prayer. As you're opening up to this, I'm sure you're seeing it's a very lengthy psalm. Uh, Obviously, we can't study it in every detail, study every detail today. Um, I instead want to take kind of a a thematic section-by-section approach. And so we're going to read it kind of section-by-section as we go along. Uh, Let's just begin then with reading verses 1 through 3. And we'll pick up verse 4 when we get there and continue on there. So Psalm 18 is our passage this morning, verses 1 through 3. Brothers and sisters, remember this is the word and the voice of God. Receive it as such. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, he said... I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. Amen. Brethren, join with me again in prayer. Father, we pray this morning that you would reveal yourself as our rock and our deliverer and our salvation from all the enemies that we face, Satan, sin, the flesh, the world. Lord, we welcome you. Lord Jesus, come and reveal yourself to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the 1993 movie uh, Groundhog Day, which is a modern classic, in my opinion. Phil, uh, Bill Murray plays Phil Connors. He's a selfish and obnoxious weatherman who gets caught in this endless time loop where he lives the exact same day over and over again. Of course, at the beginning of this, typical of his character, he responds with just more selfishness, more um, um, indulgence but eventually as the movie progresses he begins to change and he starts using this endless time loop uh, to help other people at one point we're shown that at the exact same time every day he runs to catch a child who is falling out of the tree uh, but when he catches the boy he immediately starts saying to him what do you say what do you say what do you say But the boy is terrified and just runs away. To this, Phil responds and he shouts, You little brat! 
You have never thanked me. And then he pauses for a moment and then he says, See you tomorrow. This, of course, is played for laughs. The child doesn't know that he's in a time loop. He doesn't know that every single day Phil runs to save him from harm. And yet Phil still, of course, is amazed. Why don't you ever say thank you? On one hand, this is kind of a metaphor for Phil's life. It traces for us the theme of the movie itself. Before the time loop, Phil was that childish brat. He lived for himself. He depended upon himself. He never thought of anyone but himself. But the ordeal serves to transform him from a selfish child to a thoughtful, responsible adult who sees and values other people. In this respect, though, doesn't it it kind of illustrate every child's journey from childhood to adulthood? Aren't we taught from a very young age? Don't we teach our children from a very young age? Now, what do you say? Say thank you. It's part of the maturing, growing into adult, where we not only learn to say thank you, but our eyes are open to the bigger picture of what's going on. And we see just how much God has done, excuse me, other people have done for us. You know, a child has no idea the great sacrifices parents make. A child has no idea what it costs a, a mother to carry a child in her womb for nine months and then to nurse it uh, uh, at her breast. A child has no idea that the father kind of harnesses his career and his dreams to work and provide for the child all the way up to adulthood. It's a mark of maturity, of adulthood in a sense, of integrity, when a young person begins to see this. And they begin to frame their life, not just after their own selfish pursuits, but in light of and even for all of those who have helped them in so many ways. If this is true in life, how much more so is this true in relation to the things of God? How often are we like this that child who fell out of a tree every day? Day after day after day after day, again and again and again, God provides for you, He protects you, He keeps you safe, He gives you health, He gives you good things, He extends your days. And yet you fail to say thank you. You fail to see exactly how much he's done. Even though you know he will be there for you tomorrow as well. Because he doesn't change. It's no wonder then that again and again in the Bible we are told to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 The church is instructed to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You ever wonder what God's will is for your life? Well, it starts in being very active and giving thanks and living a life of gratitude. A more specific example in relation to this psalm would be Ephesians 5.18, where the church is commanded to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The worship of the church is to include the singing of psalms. We sang a psalm this morning. We're going to sing a psalm after the sermon. 
The worship of the church also is to be giving thanks, part of it, for everything always. This is verbally giving thanks. This is worshipfully giving thanks. And this is to characterize our life, a life of gratitude giving thanks. It's, it's part of the essence of the Christian life, and it's part of, really, the genuineness of faith. Let's recall Romans 1.21, Paul indicts unbelievers. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor did they give thanks. And gratitude is not just a mark of immaturity. It's a mark of unbelief. With this, all of this in mind then, if giving thanks is so central to the Christian life, how do we do it? Where do we learn how to give thanks? And perhaps more specifically, not only do we, where do we learn how, uh, how to frame our thanksgivings, but how is a true heart of thanksgiving cultivated in us? Right? We don't just want our children to say thank you as if, you know, be good southern hospitality type children. We want them to, from the heart, offer sincere thanksgiving. We want them to see what, God, what, what has been done for them and to respond to such. And that's where this psalm comes in precisely concerning the things of God. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. It teaches us how to uh, give thanks. It, uh, we are to frame our own thanksgivings after what David thanks God for here. But this is also a psalm that should stir us up to thanksgiving. Because here we see God's magnificent salvation revealed. Here we see the voice of David We listen and we hear His voice to how God delivered Him. And ultimately, in this psalm, we also hear the voice of Christ as well. It's kind of a post-resurrection praise of thanksgiving offered to the Father from the Son. And and in that way, that is how this psalm becomes your psalm. United to Christ by faith, these can become our words. A cry of acclamation, a cry of praise, a cry of thanksgiving, echoing down all through eternity from all of God's people because of the great work that He has done for us and for our salvation. Brother, that's what I want you to see today. How this psalm not only teaches us how to give thanks, but how it stirs us up to give thanks as well. And to work through this, I want to uh, break it down um, under five, five headings, five reasons for giving thanks, if you're taking notes. You see, here are five reasons that David gives thanks. And there are things that in Christ are true of you as well, so they, they are things that should shape your thanksgiving too. I want you to see how David thanks God for the presence of God, the past acts of God, the perfect character of God, the powerful enabling of God, and the praiseworthy name of God. So first, David praises God for the presence of God. He praises Him for the presence of God. We see this in verses 1-3. through We read those just a moment ago. What I want to point out to you though, is if you think back to last week, if we noted how David began Psalm 17, remember, with a cry. It was so desperate, it was like an audible just, ah, help me. It was a shout of anguish and desperation. Well here in this psalm, he kind of starts in a similar way, and yet opposite way. 
David begins simply by shouting out, I love you, O Lord. In this sense, I think we see the same kind of impulsive, reactionary cry. Just like it marked his desperation, now it marks his joy. God has been so passionate, uh, uh, compassionate. God has been so amazing, so helpful, so merciful that, that before he can even frame a thought, he just bursts out with an I love you. You know, has someone ever done something for you where you're just so overwhelmed at their goodness in the moment? That all you can say is, I love you. All you can do is give them a hug, tears in your eyes, and say, I love you. That's David here. And brethren, this should mark our worship as well. We are to be so um, um, intimately aware of his workings in our lives and in this world. That our heart should overflow with, God, I just love you. I love you. I'm overwhelmed with your love, and I love you. So love is how this song of thanksgiving begins. And it's interesting, if you skip all the way down to verse 50, it's also how the song ends as well. It's kind of a beautiful picture of how, you know, love is the beginning and the end of all of God's mercies towards us. We'll come back to this in a moment. But what is it that manifested the love of God to David's heart? Well, it's because in the crisis that he just came out of, he became particularly aware of God's compassion with him, his companionship with him, through thick and thin. Through this ordeal of suffering and difficulty that he's about to describe, he saw that God isn't just out there. He's not just abstract. He's not just, you know... um, um, blind and, and, and unaware of everything going on in the world, but that God is a God who is near. God is a God who is present. And that's why he can heap up these phrases, these intimate phrases where he, he grabs onto God as his own. My rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. This is intimate language. It's personal language. And he's communicating the fact that God has been with him. God is our strength. He holds us. God is our rock. He conceals. Uh, he, he's our firm foundation. He is our refuge and stronghold. He conceals us. He gives us this security, this safety, this confidence. So, Realizing that God's acts flow out of who He is as rock, immovable, immutable, fixed, eternal, right? As fortress, with a place of refuge and safety and, and power. And realizing that, and realizing that God is near, that He's not just working these things abstractly, but that He's near even to the point where I call upon Him, verse 3, and I am saved. That's what leads David to burst out in praise and thanksgiving. Brothers and sisters, in the same way, I'm going to ask you this morning, have you seen this God who is unchanging, immovable, eternal, and yet present and near in the place of our security and concealment and strength and salvation? 
Have you seen, has, has the Spirit of God borne witness that Jesus Christ has and does honor His promise to never leave you or forsake you? Or to answer you when you call upon Him? That's what this psalm points us to. And we need to see and cultivate that reality that God isn't distant, fickle, uh, weak, or uncaring, but that He is unchanging, that He is powerful, and that He is loving toward us in Christ. Because when we see that, how shall we not also burst out with praise and thanksgiving the God who is near? Secondly, though, David gives thanks for God's past acts. The past acts of God. This is seen in verses 4 through 19. Let's read them now. (coughs) Excuse me. The cords of death encompassed me, the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From His temple, He heard my voice. And my cry to Him reached His ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because He was angry. Smoke went up from His nostrils and devouring fire from His mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from Him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering. His canopy around him. Thick clouds dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire. And He sent out His arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of Your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. Again, God manifested His presence with David in the midst of this great calamity spoken of here. It's one of the reasons why the Lord brings sufferings and difficulty in our lives. In case you didn't know. Because most, most of the time, it's in the midst of the storm where we most clearly see His hand at work in our lives. Jesus says, my power is made perfect in your weakness. David sees that here. And so he speaks in these glowing terms, these, this, this, this beautiful prose with, full of imagery and emotion with, with how the Lord rescued him. How the Lord saved him when there seemed to be no other help. He was in grave danger of dying. The, the cords, the snares of death kind of entangled him. But at his lowest here in verse 6, in my distress... He called to the Lord and He heard. The Lord heard His prayer. The Lord answered and saved Him. It teaches us, of course, the importance of prayer in times of distress. 
I just think of this imagery here. and I think about, you know, at times when, when I'm entangled with things in life. Right? And I feel like the cords of death around me. All of these things. Right? Frustrations and difficulties of life. Typically my thought is, I've got to get these things off of me. I've got to get out of here. So often I'm focused on the trial itself rather than the Lord. And I fail to call out to Him in times of distress. See that God answers David, excuse me, God delivers David through his prayer. The Lord uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. But in this, so he's in this grave danger of death, he calls upon the Lord, and then when he starts to describe the salvation in verse 7 and following, we get this really symbolic imagery. Highly symbolic. He speaks of the anger of God moving him to action, first and foremost. Right? The picture here is of God in his fierce wrath, strong emotion. Smoke went out from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth. Nothing makes God so angry as when his children are wronged. Through the expression, though, of God's action, it's framed as God coming through His Word. Fire coming from His mouth. That's how God accomplishes His purposes. Through prayer, we saw, but also through His Word. Just like in creation. It's through His spoken Word that heaven and earth are moved. The same is true in our salvation as well. God works through His Word. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of Christ. But then in verse 9, we get this image of, of God coming, you know, bowing the heavens and coming down out of his temple. So remind us, beautiful picture of the incarnation of Christ, how he came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. But as we think about this, you know, symbolic language, it only intensifies from there. It should raise a few questions for us. First, when did this happen in David's life? Do we have an account of God throwing hailstones of fire? Or thundering His voice from the heavens? Or flashing lightning and shaking the heavens and the earth? No, we don't. If we can scan David's life, we don't find anything that, that kind of, if we were to interpret this literally, we can't find any account where this actually happened. Of course, this is because it's not a literal account of how God worked. It's poetry, it's prose, it's loaded with symbolism and metaphor. But I think there's two important reasons why, um, you know, David speaks in this way. The first is because this language mirrors the language that is used elsewhere. First, at God giving the law at Mount Sinai, and then how God led Israel through the Red Sea in the Exodus. There we read of thunders and peals of lightning and earthquakes. The same language is used to describe what happened at Sinai and the giving of the law. And then in verse 15, we see the channels of the sea were seen. And He drew me out of many waters. That, that appeals to both Moses drawing out of the water and Israel coming through the waters of the Red Sea. He rescued me from my strong enemy, those who were too mighty for me. Verse 17, of course, Egypt and Pharaoh. He brought me into a broad place, verse 19, the promised land. This is all Exodus imagery. 
And this is important for us to see because it shows us God's pattern of redemption. Scripture is an account of history so that we see how God has acted so that we know how He will act. The same way that God acted in the Exodus is the same way that God acted in rescuing David. Furthermore, I think this shows us as well, just as God uh, was saving Israel, not just one person, but a corporate body in the Exodus, we are to see this also with David. David is a representative of God's people. He's a king. We'll see at the end, he's a God offspring. God is rescuing not just David, but all the people of God here. And of course, we see this with Jesus Christ. Remember when Christ was crucified? There were earthquakes and there was darkness filled the land. You know, in fact, if, if you really want to take this to the next level, go home tonight and read the book of Revelation. Because you'll see this phraseology all over the place. When God acts, when He descends from His throne, there's this repeated refrain of thunder and lightning and earthquakes. Same thing. So David uh, invokes these words because he's revealing there's a connection between God's deliverance in the Exodus long ago and what he also um, experienced as well. Same God, the same character of God is in play here. That's how the Exodus is kind of a prototype. It's an anticipation of all of God's future deliverances. You can see in the Exodus all the seeds of God's mighty acts of redemption. But also in this respect, David is pulling back the veil. You notice in verse 11 that God made darkness his covering. These things weren't really seen by the eye of man. But with the eye of faith, God, uh, David is saying, God worked for me just like He worked in the Exodus. Just because we can't see all the signs and the miracles and the wonders does not mean that God isn't powerfully at work, at work for His people in the same way. So in this respect, David shows us what our eyes can't see. And this calls us to faith. Spurgeon said here, Blessed is the darkness which conceals my God. If I may not see Him, it is sweet to know that He is working in secret for my eternal good. That's why David speaks with this imagery here. He's basically saying to you, do you not know? Do you not see God's mighty work in redemption? Do you not see The same God in the same way delivers the people of God in the Exodus. David and the people of Israel um, through his ordeal. And of course, Jesus and his offspring at the cross as well. Look behind the scenes. See how God works. He praises God for his past acts of redemption. And yet, as we conclude this point, don't miss one thing here. This very last verse. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me. Why? Because He delighted in me. Doesn't that like strike you like a fireball in the middle of the night? (laughs) 
The foundation for why the Lord heard David's prayer, for why he was near, was not because David deserved it or earned it, but because the Lord delighted in him. This goes back to the first verse. I love you, Lord. We love because he first loved us. Is there anything more profound than the fact that the Lord in Jesus, uh, that God through the Lord Jesus Christ delights in you? He delights in you. He delights in you if you are in Christ. Even though you're a sinner, even though you're ignorant in many ways, even though you stumble and you fall. And there's wickedness that you that, that is in you at times and comes out through your words. Even though you're obstinate and stubborn. Even though you return the same sins. Even though you're like that child that falls out of the tree and just oblivious to how God helps you every moment of every day and you never say thank you. Or rarely say thank you. In Christ, God delights in you. It's my greatest privilege of me as a preacher to be able to tell you, God loves you. God loves you. There's nothing more profound. There's nothing more amazing that God loves you. Even if you fail to believe that, God loves you. This is how this psalm preaches to us free grace. You know, brethren, that God's love is not like human love. And there's a great danger if we start looking at human love and then you know, project that upon God. Right? Human love has a beginning point. It started at some point. Human love is fickle. We look for people who love us. We look for people who, who deserve our love. Right? People who are lovable, who are likable, who stay in our good graces. But God loves His enemies. And God loves not based upon anything in the creature, but in everything in Himself. As Voss said, I've said it many times, the greatest proof that God loves us is the fact that His love never began. It's eternal. God's love for you never even began. There was never a point in time that it began. And we can't understand that. We don't know why God delights in us. That's a mystery even angels long to look into. But He does, and that is certain in Christ. So brethren, it's in seeing the fact that God's love toward you is entirely uncaused. Uh, and entirely immutable. It's unchangeable. It's seeing that when we see that. How can we not burst forth in praise? How could we not sing to Him and offer a life of gratitude? How can we not go through this right here and see our salvation? I've been brought up out of the many, wa- many waters of baptism. I've been set in a broad place. I've been, given, I've been given faith. I've been given the Holy Spirit. I've been given the gifts and fruit of the Spirit. I've been given the Word. I've been given the church. I've been given the sacraments. He's placed me in that broad place of life, forever healed, forever saved, forever joyful. Rather, don't miss the fact that when David praises God for his past acts of redemption, he sees and what fuels that is the personal love. God did it because he delights in me. This isn't just him acting out there in history. He did it for me. 
And the same is true for you if you're in Christ. David pulls back the veil. So we see God's great work behind the scenes. We see His great love so that we too might burst forth in praise and thanksgiving. Thirdly, we've got to move really quickly. We're going to move really quickly. We've seen the presence of God, the past acts of God. Thirdly, let's see how David gives thanks for the perfect character of God. Uh, Let's read verse 20 through 31. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all His rules were before me and His statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before Him and I kept myself free uh, from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. With a merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With a purified, you show yourself pure. And with a crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against the truth. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, His way is perfect. The words of the Lord prove true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? In one sense, this section harkens back to the beginning where he recalls the Lord as my rock. This perfect immutable, righteous character of God. But in this sense, um, he now applies it more particularly to his situation. He sees that his good experience with God is no fluke. It's ultimately no surprise because God's character is just and righteous and perfect in all of His ways. Of course, as we considered last week, when David says in verse 20, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, he's not saying I deserve this. He's not saying I'm sinless. He's not saying I've earned this. He's just saying in this particular situation, before men, in the face of their attacks and slanders, those seeking my life, I was in the right and they were in the wrong. David was in the right of this particular conflict. And of course, this is a paradigm for us. Just as, you know, David was righteous in this one act, in that, um, um, and the Lord rewarded him, we know that it points us to how Christ was righteous in all of his acts, and thus rewarded him. But notice a few things. How was it that David kept his hands clean? How did he keep the ways of the Lord and not wickedly depart from my God, as he says? Just like we saw in uh, verse Uh, saw last week in verse 22 it's because all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me it was because of David's deep acquaintance with the word of God that's how he's remained steadfast harkens back to Psalm 1 the gateway to the Psalter delighting himself in the law of the Lord the same is true for you and me as well Spurgeon said here that dusty Bibles quickly lead to filthy garments. It's a pithy, memorable way of saying it. 
We are delivered. We are kept on the path of righteousness through our acquaintance with God's Word. But I think we see the main point in verses 25 through 30. Again, it harkens back to God's perfect character because David sees that God deals with all of his people this way. You show yourself merciful to the merciful. You save a humble people. You are a shield to those who take refuge in you, verse 30. The focus is on God and his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his unchangeable character, the manner in which he is toward all of his people, his perfect ways. And so in David's life, he saw this perfect character of God on display. He saw that God wasn't a deliverance, wasn't just a one-off accidental thing. He saw that this was outworking of who God is. And that's why he gives praise. That's why he gives thanks. And that's why he concludes in verse 31, who is like the Lord? Who is this? Who is it that bends his ear and lends his hand to help the poor, the desperate, the humble, the broken, the helpless? Who is like the Lord who is immovable and an unchanging rock? Who is like the Lord who sees all and knows all and looks not upon appearances but upon the heart and judges perfectly? Who is like the Lord who lights our darkness and guides our way? Other than to cultivate a heart of praise and thanksgiving, we must see who God is. Let us then see His perfect character displayed upon Scripture and even in our life. And let us give thanks to Him for that. Fourthly, David then gives thanks for his powerful enabling. This is in verse 32 through 45. God's powerful enabling. The God, verse 32, who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Again, this harkens back. How was David's way kept pure? Because the God, his God, led him and, and, and sustained him. It's not self-righteousness here. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with the strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me seek under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried to help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but He did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from the strife of the people. You made me the head of nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. This section kind of encompasses everything that we've seen so far. Because God was with him, God delivered him. God displayed his perfect character. 
God actually powerfully worked through him and brought this great salvation. It's just important to note, David wasn't just sitting back passively, right? Having a Coke and a smile, just watching the Lord act. No, God worked salvation through him. God equipped him with strength. God is the one who made his way blameless, verse 32. God trained his hands for war. God gave him the shield of salvation and supported him with his mighty right hand. Verse 35. God established his steps so that he didn't slip. And through God's enabling power, he pursued his enemies. He thrust them through because the Lord equipped him for the battle. Verse 39. Because of this, God made David the king, the head of nations, where even foreigners bowed to him. Brethren, I hope this recalls to your mind things like Colossians 1.29. Paul says, I toil and struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Or I work harder than them all, Paul says, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Or work out your faith with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you for his good pleasure. Or even think of Ephesians 6 and The clear parallels here to the armor of God. We wage war against principalities and powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places, but we do so dressed in the armor of God that God gives us. This is no passive Christian life. Christianity isn't sitting back in an armchair and just waiting for God and we just sit back and watch the show. God calls us to fight, to labor, to strive, to beat our body, to discipline ourselves, to be zealous for good works, to be zealous for the things of the Lord. But He promises us, I will equip you, I will train you, I will empower you, I will enable you, and I will bring victory through you. And this too... It's a matter for which we ought to give thanks to God for. That He enables us to live the Christian life. That He gives us strength to stand. Let us praise and give thanks to God for Him as powerful enabling. This then comes to a conclusion and a climax. We're fifth and finally, David gives thanks for God's praiseworthy name. Praiseworthy name, verse 46 through 50. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing to your name. Great salvation He brings to His King and shows steadfast love to His anointed, to David and His offspring forever. Because of God's past acts, because of God's perfect nature, character, because of God's powerful enabling, because of God's presence, I skipped one there, for this, 49, I will praise you and sing to your name. Don't you see how David uses these things as fuel for his worship? 
And we are to see the same things and use them for fuel for our worship as well. The Lord is cosmic king over all the earth. He rules near, not from afar. And He is good unlike any other. And He is king. And He will show steadfast love to His anointed, to David and His offspring forever. You see how David internalizes these things. He doesn't just speak of them as if he knows them intellectually. But he embraces them and he contemplates them to the point where they become this overflowing fountain of passion and praise. And as we kind of draw this conclusion this morning, it's interesting to note that this very same psalm appears in 2 Samuel chapter 22. There, David, after all of his wars and battles are ended, uh, we read this psalm. But, but there's a number of differences. They're slight, but there's a number of differences between Psalm, uh, for 2 Samuel 22 and here in Psalm 18. Basically, what we can, um, how we can make sense of this is, on one hand, we, we see that perhaps David penned this psalm and, and early on um, and, and added to it or revised it over the years in its final form. Ended up here in Psalm 18. But more specifically, I think, it seems as though in 2 Samuel, it's more personal and individual. But here it's clearly better fit for corporate worship. The public worship of God. And in that sense, brethren, it goes back to what I've been trying to say in that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling us to see these things So that we might join our voices and give thanks and praise and worship and honor in the same way as well. And this really comes out in verse 50, where he mentions the fact that great salvation he brings to the king and to the anointed and to David's offspring. How could this not lead us directly to the Lord Jesus Christ? We know this for sure because in Hebrews 2.13 and in Romans 15.9, the New Testament quotes this psalm as the words and prayers of Christ. And of course, as we go through this, how could we not see this as well and how the Lord uh, uh, Christ cried out from the cross and was delivered. How Christ was delivered through the many waters of, of agony and death. How Christ was rewarded for His righteousness. How Christ was made the head of nations. Not to mention the fact that the word anointed here literally is the word Messiah. So brethren, this is a psalm about the Messiah and His offspring. And the salvation that God grants through the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to press this ultimately... I would put before you that this is a psalm of Jesus spoken on the other side of the resurrection. This is the Lord Jesus Christ giving thanks to the Father for what the Father had done through His life and death and resurrection and ascension. And that, brethren, is how this song becomes yours. Not simply when you go through trials and you can look back and say, Lord, You delivered me from death. But because if you are in Christ, you died with Christ. You were raised with Christ. And you are seated with Christ 
in the heavenly places. So no matter what has happened in your life, you can sing this psalm as an account of your own life. Because Christ's life is your life. And if Christ sings this psalm, why would we not sing this psalm? If Christ gives thanks, why would we not give thanks? This, brethren, brings us all the way back to the beginning and how it teaches us to give thanks and stirs a heart of thanksgiving within us. I call you today, don't be like this child. Despite all evidence to the contrary, indifferent or lazy in giving thanks to God. Gratitude is the essence of the Christian faith. It lies at the heart of all true worship that pleases God. See then God's presence with you in Christ. His past act of redemption at the cross. Your redemption in Christ. His powerful enabling leading you to persevere in Christ. See His matchless praiseworthy name and give God your best. Give Him the best of your heart, the best of your worship, the best of your words. Think of how carefully and poetic David pins this. Give God the best of your words. Give Him the best of your service. Is He not worthy of such? Brothers and sisters, He loves us. Let us see His love. And let us love Him because He has first loved us. Praise and give thanks to Him, which is fitting and proper for the Christian life. Brethren, let's pray.